0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the I Save That podcast. I'm Judy Thompson, the Director of Clinical Education at the Association for Vascular Access, and very excited today to talk to my friend and colleague, Tim Spencer. Tim, how are you today?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Judy. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. For those of you that missed the webinar we had just recently, it was a great one. Um, We kind of went back to basics, and we're talking about patency, which is a basic vascular access, if we don't have a patent catheter, we're kind of in trouble. Give us a little synopsis about what you found when you were looking at patency to bring together everything for this webinar.
1: Really, it was more about putting the fundamentals and asking the questions. You know, we did that survey that we sent out uh, through the Ava networks and social media and stuff like that, um, that we ran for a couple of weeks. We had about 510 respondents, which was pretty good, I think, Jude's. Uh, But that's a good response rate, I think, for, you know, an internet survey. You know, people are busy, you know, COVID's sort of happening at the moment, the pandemic, people are, you know, inundated with work and stuff like that. At the end of the day, it really is of value to us when we can understand what clinicians are seeing, what they're doing, what their requirements are, and what their understanding is of catheter patency. So I think really a lot of what what we wanted to achieve with the webinar Uh, was really to sort of go over some of the practice strategies and some well some of the clinical strategies I should say because there are practice and clinical strategies can be separate right Uh, because you look at policy and things like that and really take a a a little bit of a look at what is happening at the moment there's been a bit of evidence that has been published over the last few years looking at Uh, device related occlusion and catheter patency, what particular uh, declotting agent is being used for different types of um, occlusions. And so we wanted to sort of really get a bit more of an understanding about what the process is, who's doing what, what are they using, even just pulling up some of the more recent publications we're looking at when, you know, we're looking at uh, like heparin or heparinized saline versus plain saline for you know flushing and locking solutions we have to give kudos to certainly the avatar group as well they've done a lot of research looking at flushing and locking over the last few years we know that because it's been presented widely at ava you know within the last probably four years five years of our scientific meetings so there's been a lot of a lot of evidence focusing on uh, flushing and locking which i think is really good because like you said at the beginning of the podcast, you know this is a fundamental practice for vascular access uh, and infusion therapy Uh, for any clinician really that's dealing with a vascular access device. It doesn't even have to be within our specialty area.
0: One of the topics we talked about was using one milligram versus two milligrams of Activase or Cathflow and also using it in midlines. I know that Genentech does not advocate for these practices. In fact, their IFU does state two milligrams and they also say this is for use in central lines.
1: Knowing and looking and understanding and how to treat you know, device-related occlusion is going to be a, a significant educational uh, requirement. I think that's one of the things that the survey sort of highlighted as well. And some of the feedback from some of the uh, clinicians that responded actually showed that people aren't getting education. They're not getting the knowledge to how to look after it. Or the people that are providing education or even competency assessment are people that may be in non-clinical positions that aren't dealing with vascular devices on a daily basis. So it sort of really highlights some of the practice areas that where there's not necessarily strong knowledge base to support that practice and such a diversity in the number of clinicians that are actually performing the procedure, you know, to do a D-clot. There was a number of interesting responses that came back from, from the survey. But look, practice strategies, you know, we know that catheter occlusion is probably one of the most common non-infectious complications for a CBAD. And while occlusion in its initial phase may be non-infectious, it can, a device is left in situ, in place for you know, extended periods when there is an occlusion that's already established. Whether it's partial or whether it's a total occlusion, that can actually lead to infectious-related complications. So there's a parallel relationship between them. And one of the highlights, I think, that, that we talked about, it was certainly making sure that if clinicians find a partial occlusion or even a total occlusion in a, in a vascular device, particularly central vascular device, it needs to be acted upon pretty much straight away. We need to treat that occlusion as soon as possible. The longer it goes, the more chance we've got of not being able to restore patency as well and also putting the patient at risk of unexpected device removal or replacement, even catheter exchange for that matter. And it comes with its own set of risks and complications as well. So minimising that and reducing patient harm is going to be a really important strategy for clinicians. And so if they do find catheter occlusion, regardless of what type it is, it needs to be acted upon straight away. You know that it disrupts patient therapy. And when you've got important therapies that need to be delivered on time over a particular duration, because that's the requirement of the drug administration. An occlusion like that can really disrupt patient therapy It increases length of stay. There's a variety of different areas that can really affect the patient, not just themselves personally, but their entire hospital stay and everything else, plus the associated costs. So there's, there's, a, there's a few things that need to be considered. And uh, certainly when dysfunction occurs, whether it's blood-related or lipid-related or whether it's medication precipitate-related, it needs to be acted upon as soon as possible.
0: Tim, I think this is a good spot to take a short break and listen to a word from our sponsor, this episode of the I Save That podcast is proudly sponsored by Genentech. It's important to ensure central line patency as an occluded line may complicate patient care by disrupting therapies or delaying procedures. According to the Infusion Nurses Society Standards of Practice and the AVA I Save Campaign, always aspirate for a positive blood return prior to administering medication and solutions. It is also important to include standardized patency checks and documentation in your protocols. For more information, contact a Genentech representative in your area. Now, Tim, what are some of the strategies clinicians can employ to prevent or treat occlusion?
1: There's a range of clinical practices that can be looked at, and we went over these of some of the strategies to look at preventing occlusion and thrombosis in central catheters, but it certainly was more about just refreshing the evidence and what's involved in our clinical practices that we need to do as clinicians to to try and prevent occlusion and potential thrombosis. So looking at optimizing the insertion technique, you know, choosing an appropriate site choosing an appropriate catheter, but choosing an appropriate insertion technique, whether you're using Seldinger, modified Seldinger, AST, or even in some cases, direct puncture. These can all be influential, particularly if it's a difficult case and there's multiple punctures involved. We're always aiming for first pass success. That's the the ultimate goal uh, for anybody that's placing intravascular devices, particularly now that ultrasound is such a high standard that's an expectation in clinical practice today there's a lot of importance that's now placed on optimizing insertion techniques so we discussed going over those we looked at catheter to vessel ratio that was that's also an important consideration as well because occlusion and thrombosis have a relationship as well and uh, making sure that the, an appropriate catheter vessel ratio Based on the current evidence, we looked at catheter material and design. There's been a large push uh, by industry over the years to try and prevent catheter-related occlusion, build-up of blood particulate matter on the external body, but also the internal lumen of the catheter as well. And there's been a a big effort and a big push by industry to try and make a catheter that that repelled fibrin and platelets and different blood components from sticking to the walls of the catheter. We all know that the relationship between these particles have uh, with the buildup of fibrin, uh, the development fibroblastic sleeve, but also you different types of occlusions as well.
0: Tim, what about the use of anticoagulants?
1: This has been an ongoing investigation by researchers for many, many years, you know, low dose Coumadin and things like that to try and reduce fibrin and, and, and blood matter adhering to the external body of the catheter. And I still think we're still sitting on the fence about stuff like that because it's got to be taken in the right context. We have to look at the patients. What are the pros and cons of utilizing an anticoagulant systemically in patients that are at risk? Systemic anticoagulation is still, I think we're still fence sitting on that.
0: What other surprises did you see from the survey? I think the number one I did, I I don't know if it was a surprise, but Mm -hmm. that people were taping off occluded lines instead of treating them. Any surprises you found within the survey results we got?
1: Quite a few people that responded in the other section where they could actually type in their own comments. Uh, It was about 4.8% of respondents, not a high amount, but interesting comments. A lot of people saying they clamp the line and they do not use so they're either clamping the lumen and still continuing to use the other two lumens that may be patent. A lot of people said they declot, you know, it depends on the situation. Some people said, I'm a- if I'm able to flush it with saline and it's sluggish, I'll then use, you know, a declotting agent if it's confirmed that it's the tip's still centrally placed. There's a few comments saying, we don't use the lumen, we just use other lumens. They try and treat both or treat one if infusion therapies that are need to be remained continuous can't be interrupted and things like that so it depends on uh, depends on the use of the catheter but you know there's a little bit of variance in uh, in practice out there but yeah so you know it was interesting to see some of the responses that people were actually leaving the devices in place and continue to use them we know that there's potential for risk Uh, for infection. And even though when we started chatting in the podcast is that it is a common non-infectious complication, but it can lead to infectious related complications.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that if an occlusion is identified, that that clinician needs to get on it right away. And we know that if we do treat that occlusion quickly, the chance of restoring patency with alteplase is quite high. But in those cases where the clinician doesn't get on it right away, or maybe they tape over the lumen and say, don't use, and then they try to restore patency, that catheter may not ever be fully functional. So in that case, we have to do either uh, an exchange or a brand new stick. So that poses its own set of problems.
1: You know, we've been teaching, you know, CVC insertion for a long time, and not everybody is skilled in CVC insertion. And if a patient needs a device exchanged because a device or a lumen is blocked or whatever, they can't reestablish patency, it needs to be exchanged. What happens if there's someone that's not in the facility, particularly a smaller facility that can't necessarily perform the procedure? We have to, we're either forced to go to a different device or the patient has continued delays in therapy until someone that's appropriately skilled can come in and actually place a new device or exchange that device there's some negatives some downsides but i think one of the most important things is, is that with the results and what we've seen uh, that's been fed back through the survey is that there's a lot of people that are actually doing the procedure as well it's not just vascular access and infusion therapy specialists different departments different areas were actually performing uh, declotting procedures on catheters that had uh, had occlusion you know that was an interesting bit of feedback that we certainly got from, from the survey
0: Agreed. I think some of the training that the folks got, as you mentioned earlier, was a little that's true unconventional possibly. And this isn't a common procedure for everybody. If you're in vascular access, it is common. We, we find a catheter, we, we do our best to get it patent. But mm-hmm. the folks aren't necessarily getting the training that you and I would say, or the Shea Compendium would say, you need to get.
1: Yeah, Make no, sure that's true. Um, so a lot of people said that there's actually no training they only just refer off their hospital policy. Uh,
0: we said YouTube right?
1: Uh, yes, there, there is a okay. YouTube. YouTube's great for fun stuff and Not uh, procedures. But yeah, I have an issue with that. Um, as far as YouTube being a non-empirical validated site for medical education. And I know that there's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of cowboy tactics and cowgirl tactics, I guess, if you look at it that way, it's the same in any social media area. It's not scientifically based. And that's what we're trying to do as professionals is promote the science around the art of vascular access. And while The artistic side, maybe YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and all that sort of stuff, that's fine from a fun and artistic perspective. But when we're coming down to hardcore science, we need to turn to reliable sources and that's important. And I wouldn't consider YouTube a great place to learn how to do declotting. You know, clinicians post videos, you know, I've seen some horrendous CBC insertion videos that have been posted on YouTube. I'm sure you we do. all have. It's That can be problematic in its own right.
0: I think Genentech has excellent training. The education and training produced by our industry partners is some of the best I've ever seen because they have all that regulatory and compliance requirements to go through to make sure that They're not making claims that are inaccurate. And
1: oh, absolutely.
0: They teach really well. I mean, I can think of a whole bunch of different companies that have some of the best education out there, Mm -hmm. and Genentech being one of them for their product. Absolutely. They've got a declotting agent, they know how to do it right. So I think a lot of people could really glean some great knowledge from from that or their clinical education team.
1: Yeah, exactly. I went to the Genentech website to look at information and it houses a plethora of information and evidence and how to do and things like that. It really is a good resource. And they do a great job in providing up-to-date evidence on product, but also on the procedure that's involved. And I think that's really important. And I've got to agree with you, there's a lot of our industry partners and, and manufacturers that have quality education on their website there's no doubt about that and uh, it's that to me is one of the first turning points that if you are looking for information that's where you go first you don't go to YouTube or Google Google Scholar maybe to look up published peer-reviewed papers but uh, YouTube and Instagram and all these uh, social media things even I guess really on the Facebook group where you have to remember that it's it's everybody's opinion while we like to be able to post and i and i think it's a great resource but you need to step outside of that box and go to proper academic publications and studies that have evaluated particular products or looked at particular procedures and looking at outcomes and the and the clinical evidence that surrounds that I tend to harp on a little bit about evidence it's hard to keep up to date with the evidence because there's so much that's being produced at the moment nobody's wanting to do literature searches every day I feel like I'm doing I feel like I'm doing that at times but it's that's just part and parcel of wanting to be able to keep up to date with the evidence and that to me is another issue is that if you're not reading regularly and keeping up to date, then you sort of lose track on where things are. We need to make sure that all our clinicians that are doing these procedures, particularly when it comes around declotting are engaged. And that's what sort of, not frightens me, but sort of makes me apprehensive about people that are are doing assessment or teaching other clinicians how to do it, but they're not working in that specialty field themselves. And where, and where they're getting their training from. Reading a policy is one thing, but understanding the clinical implications, how to do a procedure, as well as tying it in with policy, they're all important aspects of providing clinical care. Where does the ownership start to come in? Like, do we put a lot of the declotting ownership back onto the vascular access and say, so, right, if you're not performing this, you know, more than five times a month or, you know, I'm just picking a number out of the air, then you shouldn't be doing it. That's like doing venous cannulation. If you do it once every 10 years, why bother? There's, right. There's there are
0: nuances there. to this. There's exactly.
1: Nuances. It's a skill that has to be learnt and developed. And while necess- the process of actually performing the declotting doesn't necessarily always change, it's the assessment, the understanding the patient condition and looking at the patient as an individual and things like that as well. And who's doing the training and what areas are performing declotting procedures that's one of the things you know we look at i'm just scrolling back and having a look here it says uh who at your facility is trained to perform catheter clearance procedures for vascular devices well 84 are vascular access specialists it's it's highlighting that still a lot of the a lot of the procedure is being maintained by specialist clinicians that are trained to do this and and look after vascular devices on a daily basis
0: right but, and they but have it, the high volume with that so you, exactly exactly there there's a feel to this how hard can you push how how hard well there there is technique
1: yeah Whether absolutely not- well aspir you know just aspirating and getting a feel for like what is the what how how good does the flow feel you know right. coming back into the catheter the ionist standards of practice Provide that information on, you know, syringe size and things like that around that. But so does the manufacturer's website. What was interesting is that someone had posted that they use the IFU and the Lipman policy book. How often is that updated? Like, I don't know. I don't use it, so I've, I actually, I've never, I've never even been to it. But a lot of people have access to Lip and Cot through their facilities, and it provides the basis of their policies. Well, that's fine if the evidence is reviewed on a regular basis and updated. Say on the same frequency as guidelines and standards of care. So well, when are
0: they updated a, by a specialist, or are they updated by a generalist?
1: Well, so- that's that's right, exactly. And while we're on the topic of that, it's making sure that it's just reinforcing the the situation that you have to have the specialist that's trained and educated and knowledgeable and skilled in vascular access. To be able to look at this and critique the evidence to say, yeah, this is good, we should be putting this in, or no, it's, it's, it's not. That's where our level of involvement and engagement really shines. And those decision-making processes that we make when we're reviewing evidence funnels the structure of our policy development within a facility. And look, I, I understand that a lot of facilities may use Lip and Cot as their generalized policy but if it hasn't been updated for a few years, you know, remember standards and guidelines and recommendations are published by professional organizations on a regular basis. If they're not updating them as each one of these come out, and that's the whole idea about having a dynamic document, a living, breathing document, is that it lives and breathes based on the current published evidence and the rating of, of what the level of evidence is. And that's why we have our levels of evidence triangle. It'd be nice to be able to say that everything's level one, randomised control trials, systematic review, (laughs) meta-analysis. But sometimes there's evidence that you'll only ever get that you find from a poster presentation at AVA. So we have to take it at face value as well. It did sort of surprise me somewhat that there was such a diversity in the number of people that were providing education and training to other clinicians who may not have had Direct hands-on involvement with the patient, and it might be because the old saying—that's how we've always done it.
0: I, I remember when I learned—I've learned directly from an educator from Genentech, mm-hmm. and it was great.
1: They—they
0: mm-hmm. they gave me the why, not just the what. Yeah,
1: exactly. So, which is
0: amazing. So yeah. I learned you—you you treat all lumens. You don't just—if you have one occluded and one sluggish, or just one occluded and the other one's working—you still treat both ideally yeah Yeah. and you don't get that necessarily from somebody that is doing this just as a clinical educator in hospital yeah because they don't do it and they possibly haven't been to that website and looked Mm -hmm. at their evidence of why they're recommending to do both lumens versus one
1: yeah no that's 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 right absolutely the other thing is too is that if you've been if you're drawn into a clinical situation where there's an occluded lumen and you're not you know working the floor your focus only becomes that lumen you probably don't even think about the other lumen at the time but because the exit ports are either side by side or they're lightly spaced apart particularly if you've got staggered exit ports etc etc there's also that proximity effect as well and it's all relative and you have to treat the catheter as a whole not as a half or a third or a quarter if it's a quad moment. You exactly. know what I mean? Yeah. So it should get a full 100% attention. I think that's an important strategy that we need to look at when we do that.
0: Agreed. We're going to break here for another message from our sponsor. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Genentech. It's important to ensure central line patency as an occluded line may complicate patient care by disrupting therapies or delaying procedures. Always aspirate for a positive blood return prior to administering medication. As recommended by INS, include and document standardized patency checks in your protocols. For more information, contact a Genentech representative in your area. So, Tim, one last question. I'll let you go. So, this has been great. If you had one pearl to give out on patency, what would it be?
1: One pearl on patency. Does it have to be one?
0: No, you can give <laughs> as many as you like.
1: I think, well, I think one of the big things that showed up in the, um, in the survey was there were a lot of people that didn't know what their needle-free connector was, like what type, whether it was positive, neutral, or negative. Nearly 15% of respondents didn't know what they used. That's a first line add-on piece of equipment, your needle-free connector to prevent a variety of different things, including catheter occlusion. Needle-free access is a safety issue. There's a whole bunch of things. But regardless of the type, whether it was positive, negative, or neutral, most people provided that information. And the majority of users, nearly 60% of users, were using neutral displacement uh, needle-free connectors. About just over 25%, I think, were using positive and a very small number were using negative. But nearly 15% were unsure. I think it's important that those people that are providing declotting procedures need to understand their equipment. They need to know what sort of needle-free connector, how how does it function? Is it positive, negative, or neutral? There's a lot of pearls that you could add onto that. And I'm not just really focusing on needle-free connector. It's, it's more about knowing all the equipment that you have in your facility that you utilize to be able to perform the procedure Uh, because one of the first line managements of checking the patency of a catheter is to replace needle, needleless connectors. And if you've got 15% of people that actually don't know what needleless connector type they're using, that can be problematic because unfortunately there's like 80 different needle free connectors on the market. It's hard to know which ones they all are, but if you have a facility that has one needleless connector or even if you have several, they don't all look the same, but understanding how the method of action actually performs is a really important piece of knowledge that once you know, you just file it away in the memory box at the back and then you know, oh, I've got this, it's positive. Oh, I've got this, it's neutral, or I've got a negative. Because we know that the flushing and clamping sequence is a little bit different. The majority of them are the same, but a you know, negative displacement uses a different flushing and clamping technique to say neutral and positive. So even just having understanding and knowing what your needle-free connector can change the way that you flush and lock a device. Sure. So then that, that, it, it sort of adds on the influence that one little piece of equipment may have over something else. And then when you start adding them together, they become more problematic, particularly if you've got falsity of the of the flushing technique because someone's using the wrong technique with the, the needle-free connector. And that can, you know, that can obviously lead to occlusion-related complications as well. Yeah, the big pearl is know your stuff. Uh, <laughs> know, like know your stuff, meaning know your equipment, you know, know, know that your needle-free device what type it is, what sort of displacement, if it has displacement, they're important strategies. Know the flushing techniques that go with those types, and uh, and I, you know, a lot of people say push pause or a pulsatile flush. Been teaching that for years as well. I think good flushing technique can make a huge difference and prolong catheter patency uh, if it's done properly.
0: Agreed. I think one of the things my pearl would be get to it quickly, as soon as you identify it, get to it mm-hmm. as soon as possible but also there's people that are running TKOs and that goes through at what, 10, 15 mLs an hour. That doesn't um, clear the catheter, basically. You need to give it a good plush.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, actually there was a new publication that just came out on TKVO rates and surprisingly to maintain catheter patency, they were calculated that you needed flow rates of greater than 40 mLs an hour that then become if you know if that you know if you were implementing changes based on let's just say solely on that publication you'd be infusing you know a liter to a liter and a half of fluid or more into a patient per day just to maintain catheter patency not including their fluid replacement regime So if you've got patients that have got pulmonary edema, or you know they're overloaded, fluid overloaded, it's going to make it worse. And then you look at dialysis and things like that. Although you're not going, we're not going to necessarily do it in those patients. But if you if you're pumping, you know, forty mils an hour through a triple lumen just to maintain catheter patency to KVO, you know, that's a you know it's one hundred and twenty mils an hour. So it's nearly you know a liter every eight hours. It's um, you know it's a lot. When I was a when I was a junior burger nurse, you know, on the floor in surgical and medical units, you know, they constantly used to, you know, you know, prescribe, you know, run a liter of saline over twelve hours, you know, just to keep vein open. I'm like, okay, well, why don't we just flush and lock, you know, yeah, once a shift or, you know, four times a QID, four times a day, or, you know, every, you know, four hours. Like I've seen, I remember medication charts that had flush IV cannula fourth hourly with, you know point nine percent saline you know five, right, mil, right. five, five mils
0: that's still common
1: oh absolutely and yeah. i think and i think that maybe, i think that may still be you know a suitable pathway to maintain catheter patency because Agreed. the thing is one it's low volume and you're not risking overloading the patient but yeah sure you're accessing the line probably more frequently whereas sure. A TKVO, there's, you know, there's a giving set attached. It's running on a pump, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it's the volume replacement that is is probably more concerning than necessarily catheter patency because it's not really keeping anything open. It's just running fluid into the vessel. So right. Can you, uh, you imagine
0: know. our poor renal patients that are fluid restricted and they get a thousand, they might get <laughs> a thousand mLs a day and we're giving it to them for TKO.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'd be no. mad. <laughs> absolutely well i'd have to spend an extra half an hour on the dialysis machine to suck off all that extra fluid it's all relative and everybody's practice is going to be diverse and variant you know some people will use a still use a TKPO for certain things and some people will do fourth hourly flushes or eighth hourly flushes or six hourly flushes maybe even 12 hourly flushes you know some people just heparin lock and say i'll see you in a month particularly for True. your ports,
0: ports. you know,
1: and it's all got to be relative, but it also still has to be evidence-based as well. And I think that's just circ- circling back to, you know, evidence. We really need to make sure that we're following what current evidence is saying and saying that it, it is a good clinical reason and justification to, to perform this. And I think that's an important strategy.
0: Well, on that, Tim, I think we'll wrap this up. Thank you so much for being on our podcast.
1: You- My pleasure, Judy.
0: And webinar, you—you're a fun interview. I don't need to ask you many questions because you can just keep rolling, which I love.
1: Oh, I'm a chatterbox. You know that, and I do. You know, I love I get, every second. I, of- I think you know anybody who's passionate about what they do likes to talk about stuff. Really? And whether you like, I don't admit to knowing everything about vascular access. It'd be foolish to say that I do. I know a lot about a little, a little bit. You know, so <laughs> that's what my dad used to say. But it's important because, you know, when we create dialogue, whether we do it through uh, face-to-face education or whether we do it through webinars or podcasts and things like that, it it's it stimulates the mind to think, okay, well, what are we doing? What have we looked at? What is, you know, have we looked at the evidence recently to update our policies and things like that? There are going to be triggers of opportunity to be able to say, well, maybe we need to look at investigating this. Oh, they raise some really good points about, you know, competency or performing the procedure or who takes ownership of, of performing catheter clearing procedures in central vascular device. They're all important questions that need to be asked at a grassroots level, vascular access team, infusion therapy team level, but also as you go up through management levels, like supervisors and and unit managers need to understand, so do educators and so do, you know, people in more senior leadership positions need to understand the role that what vascular access specialists infusion therapists provide uh, when it comes to preventing device-related occlusion, but also treating it as well.
0: Agreed. And it's far more than just placing devices.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's There's, a
0: fraction of what we do.
1: Yeah, it's a large portion, you know, no doubt. But, you know, care and maintenance, which device occlusion um, procedures or certainly uh, treating uh, catheter-related occlusion falls under the care and maintenance realm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's part and parcel. We may not be doing it as often as what we do, dressing changes and, you know, line changes and things like that, but it's still relative uh, in the big picture as well.
0: True fact. Assessment, troubleshooting, insertion. Got to do it all well. I save that
1: line. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Nice (laughs) plug. Nice (laughs) plug. Well, again, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in Orlando. And everybody out there, be safe. And we will see you soon.
1: No worries. Thank you very much, Judy. Always a pleasure.
0: The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, Our sponsors and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any information we've presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without the prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.